Hey guys, Alex here, just with a quick PSA that this interview was recorded over Zoom. We did have some technical difficulties on my end because apparently my internet doesn't work great. So there is a small dip in audio quality. However, there is absolutely no dip in interview quality and Dr. Fussner has some incredible insights to share. So I hope you keep listening and I look forward to hearing what you guys think. Cheers. Welcome back to another episode of Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindsets. My name is Alex White, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Crystal Nunes. And we are thrilled to introduce today's guest, Dr. Eden Fussner-Dupas. She's an assistant professor of teaching in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of British Columbia. Prior to joining UBC in 2022, Dr. Fussner-Dupas had a limited-term faculty appointment at Toronto Metropolitan University in the Department of Chemistry and Biology. She obtained her master's and PhD degrees from the University of Toronto with research interests in nuclear organization and gene expression. Welcome to the podcast, Eden. Thank you so much, Crystal and Alex, for having me. What a pleasure. Um, so, Eden, we always like to start off with a little introduction. Could you briefly describe to your listeners your area of teaching expertise and what classes you teach at UBC? Well, my real teaching expertise is in biochemistry. But as you know, Alex, um, I was stretched lovingly at Metropolitan <laughs> University. Um, so I have had an opportunity to teach in, in fields that aren't my own and aren't sort of spaces I would consider myself an expert. But now I'm back in my home space of biochemistry. And I teach third and fourth year students here at UBC. Um, they're learning a little bit more about how molecules are really the foundation of life, but also how when we understand them really deeply and take that reductionist perspective, we can really start to build amazing hypotheses on how mm -hmm. life and life works and the metabolic processes and molecular biology of that. I was a sessional lecturer for several years across many institutions. So the idea of being outside one's comfort zone in what you're teaching is very relatable to me. There are many times where, to be quite honest, I was a week ahead of the students as we worked through the course, but it was also a great opportunity to learn a lot, and that I did. I remember teaching a course about dinosaurs, and I'm no paleontologist, but I certainly <laughs> learned a lot about dinosaurs. No, I mean, and that's, I think, one of the beauties of actually throwing yourself into the classroom and, and putting yourself out there is that when we teach, we actually learn things even more deeply ourselves. So things that we thought we knew, we revisit them um, and, and to present them in front of the classroom, you get to really sink into stuff um, in a new and amazing way. So it's a constant, um, it's, a, it's a job where you get to constantly be learning new things. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, that's a study strategy that I recommend to my students. If you're trying to ensure your understanding of a concept, teach it to someone. Grab that younger sibling, grab a friend, talk to them about the concept you just learned in biochemistry or whatever it might be. And then you'll quickly identify when you have those strengths and are able to explain it well, or when you might be stumbling and maybe need to revisit. No, that's amazing. 
Um, I was going to say that when you introduced that technique to me, that was the first time that like it clicked for me that I'm very like an auditory and doing person. Like I have to have heard myself say the thing for me to actually know that I know the thing, you know, and that's such a weird concept because you spend so much of your life just sitting and being talked at that like to be talking to someone or explaining it even to yourself or your dog is so helpful. A thousand percent. I've heard time and time again, as recently as this morning, actually, from a student who said, well, it makes so much sense when you say it. And then when I have to go and apply it myself, I realize, uh oh, maybe I didn't have as strong of an understanding as I thought. So taking that moment just to talk it out loud and say it in your own words can be so helpful. So Eden, do you also engage in pedagogical research? And if so, what are your research areas of interest? I do actually, um, Crystal, I'm, I'm really fortunate here at UBC to have access to quite a, a, a large range of funding opportunities. So I have, I think about four, maybe five um, projects on the go right now. The one that I'm, I'm thinking about right now, I don't know if that's just because Alex is here. And so I'm thinking about this project that I've had an opportunity to be involved in, and I'm not even gonna say I, I started. It's a project that's about getting students and faculty together to like redesign and rethink courses. So it's a students as partnerships opportunity for our undergrads who are experts at learning mm -hmm. to come to faculty and share their perspective and to co-create um, and co-develop a new course. Mm -hmm. So this course is a is a huge biochemistry course offered at UBC. It's offered to students who uh, did not sign on the dotted line to study biochemistry for the rest of their lives. Right. So it's attracting a, a very diverse audience, academically diverse. Um, we have engineers, we have food and nutritional scientists, we have physiologists and pharmacologists all coming into their space with this amazing toolkit that's quite unique to them and where they are coming from, what their position is in terms of the academy and what they've been interested in. So this presents an amazing and unique opportunity, I think, to really emphasize that diversity is our power, right, in science. But how do I stand up and give a didactic lecture and be like, oh, you know, here's biochemistry. It's so awesome. And molecules, molecules, molecules. When I'm talking to students who don't always speak in that language. They're not always fluent in that atomic space. And so we're trying to reimagine and develop this course so that we can have lots of fun in-class exercises that you really only succeed at if you draw from all the sort of members of the community in the class. So like you want your A plus, you gotta go out and meet an engineer, you gotta go out and meet a microbiologist and you've gotta put these pieces together in a really fun and creative way. So we're having a blast with that. Um, and we've done it so far using sort of a blended learning strategy, um, which is a kind of a rip on the flip classroom. Um, and so we've been monitoring the success of it. And so far we're we're beyond excited with the with the learning and 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 the critical thinking that students are able to demonstrate, even on high pressure stuff like final exams. That's fantastic. And I love the idea of engaging students as partners in our research. It's so valuable. I've been doing that more myself recently. Uh, just as one example, we're currently developing multi-stage case studies that more authentically engage students in 
both the scientific method and also the idea of failure and failed experiments as goes along with our um, objectives of our research group. And we've brought an undergraduate RA onto the team and their perspectives have been invaluable in what they've brought to the table. And in many cases, we're really leading the development of these case studies. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. It's so rare to be asked what you want to do as a student. Like, how do you want to learn this? What do you want to learn? Like the most we get asked, I think, is, uh, can we finish this lecture early? Like, would you guys be okay if we ended the lecture early or we started a little bit later? Like, for the most part, we're kind of passive in our learning, but I think being active in learning is such an important part of uh, succeeding. Uh, you mentioned something called a flip classroom. What is a flip classroom exactly? I've never heard that term before. So a flipped classroom, because we often, I mean, you were my class, you got mm -hmm. a list of pages I wanted you to read in your textbook, right? So you yeah. were given, you were given um, some structure in terms of come to the class, having some basic understanding of concept acts. And then the idea is that in the classroom, we can kind of do more of the heavy lifting of like, you know, here's how we would apply it. Here's how we really think about this. This is like, these are the pieces that we don't know yet, or this is the, the critical space in which we're moving, right? Mm -hmm. But in a flipped classroom, what you do is you provide some of the basic video content, usually, beforehand. Now, the blended version of this is actually I provide quite a bit of video content, but then I subtract it from our in-class time. So I don't consider it kind of like a pre-class activity, like it's not, you know, like homework or pre pre-work, um, I actually take it off of the, the time I expect my students to spend um, thinking deeply about biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And I think they appreciate the that I'm valuing their time in this way. Like, I think that that has certainly been some of the feedback that they're, they feel that it's, it, they are, you are under a lot of pressure, right? I've seen your bullet journals, it's intense. Um, and so one of the things that I'm, I want to ensure that we're doing in this in this project, in this experiment, um, is that we're not adding workload, that we're just really adding an opportunity to to view the material in a new way and to and to do that in in and hopefully a slightly creative and and fun critical thinking kind of way. I think one of my first exposures to the flipped classroom idea was in my own undergraduate degree with a calculus professor that I had, where instead of spending class reviewing the mathematical concept and then telling us to go home and say, okay, do questions four through 10 in your textbook. He reversed that in that the, the reading of the concepts was done on our time. And then we came into class and did problem solving together. And it was so valuable and effective to the point where he became very popular and everyone was trying to get into that section because it was much more effective for our learning and understanding of those otherwise could be tricky uh, calculus concepts. So Eden, although you have remained in academia, your path, as you just outlined for us, has transitioned from more research-based natural science work of your graduate school days to now a teaching-focused faculty position. So can you briefly describe that journey for us? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I started off incredibly intent on staying in academia. I think... Um, I think Alex might know this. I, I actually was a high school dropout and I came back to undergrad a little bit later in life. 
Um, and I had the great fortune of meeting a, a botanist actually at U of T. Um, she was on the cusp of retirement and she had an NSERC grant she hadn't spent. And as you know, Crystal, when you haven't spent your money, they'll take it back. So yes, they do. So, so she, she gave me the opportunity as a first year undergraduate student to design and develop my own project. And she said, go start in the library, <laughs> check out the lab, see what equipment we have, and then come back and we'll chat. And I, I can't even tell you how hook, line, and sinkered I was <laughs> from that moment on. And, and, and the joy of the discovery, very infrequent um, as it may be, was, was really intoxicating to me. And I loved, I loved the process of trying to kind of think through the problem and all the failure that goes into it and all of the like, oh, troubleshoot this, troubleshoot this and, and sort of push through and, and finally make it to the end. And so I was quite sure that I was destined for a research faculty position at the end of my PhD. And then I started my first postdoc with Dr. Tony Pawson, who unfortunately passed away while I was in his lab. And um, an incredible scientist, beautiful man, very, very strong mentorship qualities. Like he considered himself just a cheerleader. He's like, my job is just to cheer you on. You know, your job is to to think about things in the way you want to think about them. And I started thinking about that as like, this is an incredible teacher. You know, this is an amazing, um, amazing place to really learn. And then when I started my second postdoc, after I'd had my first baby, um, I was given the opportunity to be a sessional teacher on top of my postdoc, just like, hey, on the side, could you teach this course? And I was like, okay, well, it's a lot of time. I'm a new mom, but you kind of need a hand. I'll, 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 I'll help. I'll pitch in here and try. And honestly, my first lecture, I had that same feeling like, oh, I'm never leaving the classroom. <laughs> this is great. I love being a part of that, that process of development. And I think it's sort of then from that point on slowly, slowly started shifting into the, into the teaching space. And after I'd had my second baby and was given the opportunity at TMU to really test my teaching chops because Alex to be honest like when I, do, I actually didn't know if I could teach because I'd been oh. only in classes with senior students and I would come in and be like last night I read a paper and I thought it was cool and I'm going to talk let's share it and talk about what we think this might mean and it wasn't teaching in and there was no structure in it, it was, I was like low 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 structure um and I came in and met Alex and suddenly there was all these awesome, bright, enthusiastic first-year students looking at me going, and I'm like, oh dear, we're going to have to plan a lecture. <laughs> and I think, um, I think that it was really, I, that was a very formative experience for me was working with Alex and, and her classmates. And I think then I started to feel a little bit more confident that teaching was a space that um, worked for me and that I wasn't just a, an enthusiastic biochemistry ambassador. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, there was uh, a lot of time, I think, well, Crystal, you teach the same class that Eden taught. I am for the first time. The first yes. I think that that class might just be a really hard class to teach because everyone I've ever spoken to on the faculty that has taught that class is like, that class makes you question yourself. So the fact that that was your first kind of like big teaching gig and it was all first years and it is a monster course, like you did an amazing job. <laughs> Thank you. Here's, here's my heart. You can't see it on the audio. <laughs> <laughs>
your story of your journey in at several points you highlighted the importance of failure which of course is an ongoing theme of our podcast not only in the failures that you experienced throughout your your research um, but also your experience in high school and the fact that here you are a faculty member at UBC and yet you also recognize that you are a high school dropout but bouncing back from that, that resilience that goes along with that experience is incredible. And also, all I can think of is how it really highlights how important providing research opportunities is for our graduate students, because that sparked that excitement and that interest for you of being given that opportunity in your first year. Absolutely. And I and I think that that is certainly one of the things that as faculty members, we probably all struggle with. There are so many amazing minds out there in our undergraduate classrooms, and then so few limited opportunities for those students to really explore their own um, thinking and, and to be involved in something that's new and novel and, and undiscovered. And actually, in one of my fourth year classes, now this has got a, it's 15 students. Um, I've, I'm trying to work out ways in which students can be involved in research without being in a lab. So we're doing computational projects. And I think that the advent of sort of computational biochemistry and, and beautiful things like AlphaFold, where you can like understand a protein structure from the comfort of your own study space, I think is really opening that door a little bit. And so that anyone with internet access and a computer, even just go to the library, you can actually discover something new. You can be involved in that creative, undiscovered space that is what we all enjoy about science, or I think many of us enjoy about, about science. And it, it really gives everyone an opportunity to, to see if it's right for them. Yeah, I, um, I should also mention, I don't know if I've told Crystal this, I also was a high school dropout. Um, I finished, I only had three credits, so I finished in the summer online using ILC, which is a fantastic source. Um, but I I never felt that school was working for me, you know, even in elementary school. And I also like didn't have, I wasn't a science kid. I was never gonna be a science kid. I was always gonna be an arts kid. That's how I felt. I felt slated. And I think we slate kids very early on into their roles um in society where it's like you're kind of getting pushed one way where it's like you can I don't know you get you get pushed into like the math streams right come high school and you're like 13 when you make that decision and you get told things by your teachers that I don't think that they realize are gonna follow you for the rest of your life <laughs> um but university is so different because suddenly it's kind of like you have this clean slate and people don't really know you and the profs don't really know you and and you have this opportunity to make yourself known and make your special qualities, I think, really uh, be your strengths instead of your weaknesses. Like, what is it that analogy where it's like a fish trying to climb a tree? You know, you can be really good at swimming, but you don't have to climb this tree. That's okay. So I just wanted to say, yeah, like, I really connect with that part of your story. I don't think you hear a lot of profs talk about that, which is amazing. 
or unfortunate, but it's amazing that you openly talk about it. And, and I think it is un unusual. Like, I think that it's, it's harder to go back as you know, like it's harder to go back when, um, when you've made the decision to, to leave something. And I think that that's one of the things around, uh, around the power of feeling comfortable in the space of failure that really helps you to, to reframe your mindset and to, and to shift and transition is hard for humans and that transition out is hard and the transition back is brutal. And so I think that the, it, I think that that is, it's an incredible um, component if you can learn to cultivate it and sit with it really, because it's, it's tough. As we've already mentioned, the purpose of this podcast is to narrow the gap between students and professors, something that you're clearly very passionate about yourself. And it's about creating a platform to share experiences with failure, critical life experiences that students and faculty alike can relate to. With that in mind, can you describe what failure means to you? Yeah, that's actually a really tricky question because I think failure it, it only stops as failure when you kind of let it in a weird way. And, and I'm talking about failures that are within your control. And I think that those are the only ones that I would classify as failure. There's lots of things that happen outside that we really actually have no control over. Um, and, and that isn't a failure. But a failure is when we are maybe let our ego kind of take over and not, not allow ourselves to kind of learn from what's mm -hmm. happening, not sort of move ourselves into that more metacognitive space, I think is what I'm looking for here. And, and, and think about it from a, from a different perspective and then allow a new thing to grow. And, and I, I, so I think it's, it's a normal human reaction to want to shy away from, from failure, right? This is mm -hmm. an uncomfortable place, right? But I think that the, those of us who, who find success in 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 through tricky situations are 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 the individuals that are I think more comfortable in this in this sticky space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I once had a student define the failure not as getting the poor grade or getting below fifty, but the failure is giving up, is not trying again. And if that stage happens, then that's the failure. And I think that's a really incredible way to look at it, framing it in in the lens of resilience versus just the actual event of the failure itself. Also, of course, stressing that every single person will define failure differently for themselves. Absolutely. So now that we are familiar with kind of how you define failure, would you mind sharing with our listeners a time where you have failed? Uh, maybe it's an example from your undergraduate education, your research, or maybe your current role as an instructor. I mean, I'm so, I'm, I'm, ri I'm a rich source for this, um, <laughs> but I think I don't know if it's because I'm sitting here with Alice. I, my 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 mind is now turning to when I was in first year, um, and that's when Alex and I met. Um, I had dropped out of high school, which was not a failure. <laughs> it was the right decision for me at the time. I came back, and I'd actually never taken any chemistry, so I I I didn't take chemistry. I love 
biology, I love physics, um, but chemistry, I just hadn't experienced yet. And my first class, 9 a.m. Monday morning, my first day of university was chemistry. And I walk in and my chemistry professor is talking about chemistry and talking about R. And there's this giant periodic table behind him. And I'm like looking for R. I'm like, this has got to be on there somewhere. And I had no idea he was talking about the gas constant. So absolutely all of my spare time, all of my study time is like, oh gosh, I'm clearly going to need to learn this from scratch. And so I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in the library reading chemistry textbooks. And we get to the first midterm. There were 20 questions. They were all multiple choice. There were all four choices per question. And I got 20%. I got 10%. And so I got probably the lowest mark in the class, 10%. And so, and there are 400 students in this course. And I was so bad and so noticeable that my professor actually called me in and this was before you would normally just email students like he phoned me and he said I need to see you <laughs> and he had a scary dark office full of papers and he turned around he's like are you trying to fail my class like he was angry I was like no I've never taken chemistry um and I was like crying like I mean here's my professor telling me like uh, like <laughs> to come in because you're you're making me feel like I'm not doing my job right and I explained my situation and he's like oh that makes sense and he introduced me to one of his graduate students who tutored me in chemistry gave me an opportunity to do like repeat the semester and I ended up with a degree in biochemistry <laughs> I have a PhD in something with the name chemistry in it. And I think that that was that moment of really deeply worrying about my ability to do this. And then suddenly having somebody say, okay, you can do it. You know, you got this. And then I was like, no, I'm going to tuck in and do it. Right. And so sometimes I think we get lucky in terms of community support. And if you don't have that chemistry professor might be a little angry at you telling you to to come in and try I think that even just the voice of being like you know I tried in a new approach let's try you maybe need some help self-study here is just it's you don't have that time let's get you some help here let's let's bring you up to speed and I think that was I mean I certainly wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today if that <laughs> that conversation hadn't happened it's those connections that we make but especially in first year, all, all the people I'm friends with now, like Iman and Angeline and all of them, I met them in my chemistry lab. I feel like there's something about chemistry that just brings people together <laughs> and like really like the support system, especially among biology kids, I think, because we're kind of, we're all kind of in over our heads at first. It's really, it's really funny. Like we just, we all sort of band together and get through it, but they also are the same people that I met then that pulled me out of my funk when I failed my first biochem exam last year. And I was like in tears in, in Ted Rogers, like in the, in the like atrium. So embarrassing. The prof literally walked by me and I'm like crying about the exam. And they were like, no, okay, this is what we're going to do. They made a plan for me. They were like, you are going to watch the videos. We're not going to lecture. We're all going to study together for these things. We're all going to teach each other. And so we did, and we all ended up with A's in the course and we all did really well. And I came back from that, oh God, it was like a, it was a 48%, which isn't like my worst, not, not the worst I've done, <laughs> but it was, it was shocking. It was jarring and yeah, and we all did well. And, and really it is just those 
having people around you if you're lucky enough to and if not you know finding a way a place where you can go that really is that kind of make or break moment when you're faced with these things this is a bit of an aside but one thing that I really appreciate Eden is how you've been framing your failures throughout this discussion and that you're absolutely right they're not necessarily failures depends on who you ask and I've noticed the same thing when I share my own stories in that Alex knows this but I'll do a segment in my course Friday failures with Dr. Nunes um, where I share a story of a failure of mine every week um, they since changed my schedule this term. So now it's the Monday motivator because I don't have a Friday class. And of course, the alliteration is critical for the segment. So <laughs> got to keep that going. Um, but there are some times where I think of a story that would be valuable to share with my students. And I tell them, you know what? I didn't even think of this as being a failure. It was kind of just an experience. But maybe some would look at it that way. So let's chat about that experience or failure however you'd like to frame it yeah no it's amazing and I've, I've actually heard um crystal about your your party failure segments from other right. students yeah no they're infamous they're awesome you're gonna make me blush <laughs> speaking of infamy the cow question <laughs> Just as an, aside, as an aside, I can't have you on this podcast without asking you about the butter question. That was, that is so, that was the best question I've ever been asked in my entire life. <laughs> and I always, if I can't ask a question like that on, on an exam, um, then what are we going to talk about in 10 years when you tell me all the awesome things you're up to? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think one of our goals is, um, as, as, as educators, I think usually is to to, to give our students that sometimes a little extra push here and there. And as long as it's not too full force and all the time, then I think it's a wonderful challenge um, and, and to push your mind and to kind of creatively think about science. Because I think as young people, we're taught that science is very factual. It's really rigid. There's one solution. But when we emerge as scientists, we realize that science is an argument and that there's options and ideas and things that we can, can push through and pursue, um, which can be often wildly wrong. Um, Crystal, I don't know if you, for context, this butter question, it was... I used to remember the exact wording, but I don't remember it now. It was something like um, cow's butter, like cow's milk butter is becoming harder. Um, why? Basically, <laughs> it, it like presented it in a very like it was like to like make a, a, a an experiment that you could do and like have a hypothesis and a research question. And everyone was so baffled by it because it came right at the end of the exam and everyone was running out of time. So people were throwing together the most obscure answers. <laughs> but I think I think I think we all probably did really well on it because we were a little unhinged at that point. We just sat a two hour exam. We were like, all right, here we go. I got 10, I got five minutes design an experiment. I hope you all remember it. Actually, um, I enjoyed that question so much. And even though there was, I don't even know how many, there was like 850 of you. I marked that one myself and I enjoyed every minute of that. That was so fun. <laughs> I know personally 
especially in first year, one can feel very overwhelmed and lost. And like university is a competition between you and 400 other students in the room or 850 on Zoom. So uh, there's often a bit of a hesitation to help one another. With that in mind, how important is fostering an environment of collaboration for your teaching style and even in your professional relationships? Um, I would... I would put that one on the essential scale. Um, I think that as, as scholars in university, it's easy to feel, especially as junior scholars in university, um, it's easy to feel like your, your, your job is to show up, listen, write notes, think about it, write an exam. But in fact, the whole purpose of university is to bring scholars together. And we are building with each other on our understanding. So we're our, our goal is to be able to develop new knowledge, to have a new understanding, a new perspective. And you all, every single person in the classroom has their own, own lived experience, their own understanding, um, their own interpretation. And so when we put our understandings together, we build something amazing. And, and, and solid and, and interesting um, and sometimes even new. And so the, uh, that is a fundamental pillar sort of of the academy, I think is one of the reasons I put it in the essential category. And the other one is actually one that Crystal's already touched on. And it's often referred to as the Feynman principle, but I'm not entirely sure if Feynman was the person who came up with it. Just in case anyone is like me and had no idea who Feynman was, I decided to do some Googling, and it turns out that Dr. Richard Feynman was an American physicist who won a Nobel Prize in 1965 for his work in quantum electrodynamics. However, he is also very well known for his ability to break down complex concepts into understandable chunks through the implementation of the Feynman technique. Now, the Feynman technique is something that you can use when you're studying for your exams. It's actually one of the methods that I use personally. First, you select your concept and you teach it in a way a child would understand. If you find that when you're practicing, you come up empty somewhere, you can identify the gaps in your explanation and then you go back and you organize it, go over those gaps and simplify it again. And then the most important part, which I know is usually the part nobody wants to do, is that you have to review it on a regular basis. Now, besides the Feynman technique and being a Nobel Prize winner, he was also very well known for his philosophical musings, which are sometimes referred to as the Feynman principles. One of my personal favorites that I came across is the first principle, which states that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. But the idea is, is that when you really want to master something, when you really want to deeply learn it, you need to spend 50% of your time learning and 50% of your time teaching. And so the more I can get my community together to share their understanding, to teach one another, the higher the level of mastery is gonna be within that classroom. And actually that's another one of my educational projects that I'm working on. Actually it's a really multidisciplinary project that's going on um, here at UBC, uh, computer science, arts, another one of my friends and colleagues in biochemistry. And we're trying to figure out good ways in which to do this in, in 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 a sort of um, 
energetically not super intensive manner, but where students can form sort of organic groups. And it, it's hopefully going to lead to exciting things. But I think that this is really an important thing. And during the pandemic, as many, many of your listeners who are in undergrad have been deeply impacted in terms of their learning style, what happened was not only were you isolated from your friends and, and not had huge implications on your just well-being, but you were, you learned how to learn by yourself. So you learned how to take information and only be there with you and your own mind. And so through that, it became very siloed, the experience of undergraduate education. And I'm so happy to hear that you got together with some fantastic humans um, to get through your biochemistry hump, because that's really where deep learning is going to happen. And so that that's happening already. And slowly we're emerging from that siloed fog. And when you learn how to learn and you're like, oh, this was successful, changing that strategy is going to take effort, energy. It's a transition and it's going to be a shift. And so I think when as much as we can do to support that re-emerging of those networks, I think is going to make everything better. Yeah, I did not thrive online. I, I don't know. So many kids are um, I guess it's every person is very different and it is a testament to different styles of learning um, and different ways of processing information um, because some people are like, I did so well online and I loved being online and it was great and I wish it was online all the time. And I struggled so much with the online learning experience and I'm so glad that it's knock on wood it's not it's not like that there are courses that lend themselves to online I think better um I think math is a really good one online if they have like a whiteboard you can see what they're doing um versus like when they're writing on the projector I think computer science classes great online I'm learning biometry right now that would be a, is kind of an online class and it's a great one but biology and chemistry, those say I feel like they need to be in person. I would say especially for the lab components that are often associated with those courses. I mean, we had students entering third year who hadn't yet used a microscope. So it was it was a unique time and um and to have cohorts of students not have those hands-on experiences was a challenge. Yeah, we were kind of lucky. We got in second semester for our labs, so we really didn't miss much in terms of um, lab skills, although we had a very, uh, not, it wasn't in retrospect, it wouldn't have been hard, but um, our like lab project was, what was it, culturing fungus and like nematodes, and we were doing all this stuff, and, and it should have probably been something that we could have pulled off but no like no one pulled it off so they just had to give us data because none of us could pull it off but now having done biochem I'm like ah oh, see if we had done biochem or if we'd done any sort of culturing we would have been like oh yeah we can do this no problem someone, someone would have gotten results that they could have used summer when I did my field course there were people who were going into their masters who didn't know how to use my, uh, the microscopes. So we kind of did a crash course on it, which was good, I think. It was it was really good, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It is a weird situation to be in for everyone, I think. Yeah, I did hear that some institutions were offering crash courses and basic lab skills before transitioning back in person. But what, yeah, but what we didn't offer crash courses in was how to like resume studying with your friends. 
Yeah. <laughs> like we didn't, we didn't, we didn't share the idea that the, the, the learning is going to be better, more fun and deeper when you, when you actually are learning with each other. And, and I'm only now starting to like see some sort of a little bit more chaos in the student study spaces here at UBC. Like students are starting to like, go, oh yeah, that, that might work. We could, I don't have to go home by myself and study in my room <laughs> alone. I can, I can work with my friends. And I think it's when you learn how to learn, it's breaking that learning how to learn habit in and developing mm-hmm. a new one is it actually is hard especially yeah. if you're like you have a winning strategy like it's it's tough to break out of that yeah it's only I feel like especially you said change and ego and all that it's it's very difficult to uh to accept when you might need to change something if it as soon as it doesn't work some people will just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and so you really do need to take that moment to like step back and reassess and have have some reflection time so finally Eden as an educator I am sure that you have encountered students who might be struggling with their perceived failures that they've experienced so what is a piece of advice that you could provide to undergraduate students experiencing failure? Again, however they might define that. Um, again, I would say that that's a tough question and, and it really is quite a unique, um, it would depend uniquely on the, on the failure and on the student. But I think if it was a, you know, a common failure in the classroom, underperformed on an exam, um, then I would say the first step is to actually look at what you feel you did successfully. How was your mind, What? where was your mind when you answered a question and you felt like it went really well for you? How was it that you approached not only the question, but how did you approach how you learned that information? Because in there is the space where your, it is working for you. Your, your mind is doing something in a way that is absolutely successful here. So, and then also helps to maybe massage the ego. Because the ego is going to get hurt looking at what didn't go well, where the mistakes were, where the questions that you got wrong were, right? The ego is going gonna, is gonna to be bruised by that moment. So first, I'd say massage the ego and also learn from your successes. Like failure isn't the only space to learn from, right? We can learn from both. And then move into the more challenging space, I think, of looking at questions like, where where did this one go wrong for me? Was it that I didn't understand the question or was it that I wasn't prepared for the question? And I think that those are two different now approaches in terms of avenues for solution, but they all come back to revisiting how it is you're thinking about your own learning and your process of learning. And so we can make lots of improvements to that. And if that's your goal, it's totally attainable. I think that's incredible advice. And Alex would know this being a student in my ecology course in that I offered a reflective activity for students to complete after the term test. The first question is, how did you prepare? What did you do? Second question is what worked? what went well and then the third question is what maybe didn't work and how can you modify that for term test two coming up next month so providing those opportunities to encourage students to engage in that process of metacognition and reflecting upon their own learning it can be uncomfortable but it's it's so valuable 
No, that's amazing. I'm glad you're doing that right in your classroom. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to steal that from you. So as a bit more context, it, it feeds into the idea of um, improving students' perspectives on failure and providing opportunities for improvement. And so it is a way in which students can improve their term test grade. So if they complete this reflection, and then I also have them reattempt the short answer questions of the test, I don't care if the answer is still incorrect or not, I just wanna see improvement, then I add a marker to, to the test. Um, quite straightforward for me to do, but from survey responses, it was incredibly well-received from students. It gives a chance for them to get that little extra boost on their term test grade, while on my side of things, I'm encouraging them and incentivizing them to engage in that reflective process. Mm -hmm. I never even thought of it that that's tricky. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we didn't even think about that. Who knew? We were like, oh, we have to write a reflection and I get a boost. Amazing. <laughs> okay, now I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very, very smart. It's the currency though, right? Like grades yeah. are the currency, unfortunately, yeah. in higher education. So that's how we pay. Yeah. Okay, so thank you, Dr. Eden for coming. Do you have any questions for us or any current projects you would like to share? Um, research opportunities, anything that you want to just give yourself a little shout out for? <laughs> no, well, I mean, if any of my TMU students are coming out to UBC, I definitely would love to have a cup of tea with you and chat. Um, it would be so nice to see you um, and your classmates in person. I actually do really miss that, um, that community. Our, our late night office hours and yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it was a, a fantastic group and I'm I'm actually I'm really excited to see where you go next so and another thing I don't know if you hear often because you are in our classroom spaces it's a very transient amount of time you move on which is beautiful it's like watching your children grow up like you're like oh my scientists my science babies <laughs> out in the room but there's nothing that brings more joy than than having a former student come in and say, oh, look what I'm doing. And you're like, um, and, 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 and we love the meandering path. We love yeah. the, that, that sort of unexpected, right? Um, it's, a, it's really exciting and it, it's something that we're all cheering for. So do drop by. Um, I do have lots of projects. If you do come out to UBC and you wanna work here, uh, I would, it would be great to have your help. <laughs> Dr. Eden Fussner dupont thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful to have a TMU alum on this episode, and I'm sure that this is one of many future conversations. I can't wait, Crystal. Such an and you're doing such exciting work, and I'm 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 really uh, excited to sort of apply some of that into my own classroom space. So thank you for that hard work you're doing. And Alex, such a pleasure talking to you again today. And um, please say hi to the gang. I will. <laughs> and that is a wrap on another episode of Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindsets. Another huge thank you to Eden for joining us this week. Next week, we have Dr. David Kinahan on to talk about how important it is to find your passion and follow it and how that advice took him from dental school to a PhD in English literature. 
As always, we would like to extend our thanks to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for helping to make this podcast a reality, as well as our host, Toronto Metropolitan University. Finally, we would like to thank Kyle Andrews for putting together our theme music. And most importantly, we would like to thank you for listening. And I can't wait for you to come fail with us next week. See you then. Bye. Thank you.